coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 52 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Stat, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. Dolores Lozano is out in California on vacation this week, and she will return to us next week. But guys, just from everything that is going on in the world this week, I mean, we have the terrorist attacks in Nice. We have the attempted military coup in Turkey. Uh, we had the Pokemon Go phenomenon just absolutely take over the world. I mean, can you recall a week in which there have been so many different but yet big and significant global events? I don't know. Is there is there a time that you're thinking of that you want to compare it to? It seems like you have something in mind for this. For example, in Turkey, uh, the last time they had a significant coup was 1981. Sure, we and, all remember that. Yeah, I mean, clearly we were all alive. But uh, it, it's such an important moment, I think, in uh, history. And, and for me, being a political science nerd, international studies nerd, I, I study the Middle East and uh, the culture and political implications a lot. So to me, it was just fascinating watching everything unfold on TV and especially seeing some of the in- images from Istanbul. I mean, I was there two and a half years ago and many of the places and monuments that I saw were you know, no more than 200 to 500 yards outside the, the apartment in which I stayed. So to me, that was kind of fascinating. Just the real world implications that we see with Turkey being a strong United States ally. What does this mean since they're an EU nation now? Uh, does this mean that ergo they're, they're the prime minister president? Does that mean that he's going to uh, take more power in and kind of uh, limit human, you know, essentially have more human rights violations in Turkey? So I think it's a, a pretty significant thing. And then all, obviously with the terrorist attack in Nice. I mean, this is the second time France has been struck with a significant terrorist attack in the past, I guess, less than a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that uh, Jeremy and I actually knew several people that were there was kind of uh, insane. And then, you know, I don't know, just those two real world events that have so much impact on, uh, you know, the globalized society that we live in. I, I thought that was just fascinating. And then if you want to speak about globalization, Pokemon Go. Yeah, we are we are all one, uh, according to the tents of Pokemon Go. I've been doing a lot of Pokemoning myself. It's a shameful thing. Uh, I've been encountering other people that are doing the same thing I am, and I have concealed my phone from them, and I have made them think that I'm not one of them, because uh, I'm a ostensibly grown person out there playing Pokemon, but I'm doing it. It's an addictive thing that I have to have, for sure. But, uh, of course, uh, the, the France thing is more interesting to me. In episode 15 of this show, of course, we spoke to Alfonso Oliveira, good buddy of mine, uh, buddy of yours from high school as well, and uh, about what was going on, because there was another attack, this time in Paris, and now we've got an attack in Nice. Uh, what is it about France that makes it such a rich target for terroristic activity? To answer that question uh, fully, I think you have to kind of go back uh, and look at where France is right now. Um, They have a large uh, Muslim population, and of course, most of those people are, um, you know, productive citizens that want to be French. Um, There are pockets, though, of extremism that are giving them problems. I think, though, if we're looking at uh, globally, um, the terrorist attacks in Nice and Paris are getting, you know, more attention than other terrorist attacks, which are happening almost daily and weekly in other parts of the Middle East. In fact, there was an attack in Baghdad or somewhere else in Iraq the other day that killed something like 80 people. So, I mean, this is happening a lot. It's just that France has happened to get a lot of the attention right now. I think that's one of the things that frustrates me, and I know I expressed this sentiment uh, in our group text message thread, um, but it, it bothers me that the rest of the world cares when it happens in San Bernardino, when it happens in Orlando, when it happens in Paris, when it happens in Nice. But when it happens in uh, Turkey, for example, which there are countless 
terrorist attacks that have happened in Turkey this year, um, more than probably anywhere outside of Iraq and Afghanistan, nobody cares. When there were 200 people killed by uh, a car bomb in Baghdad, nobody cares. And when I say that, I mean, people obviously do care, but it doesn't make the, I guess, headlines. We don't see our friends changing their Facebook profile pictures to the Iraqi flag, like we do seeing friends change our Facebook pictures right now for the French flag. So, Well, when the government shuts down social media, it, it does make it more difficult for news to get out in a way that can catch on and become viral. So I think that has, that has a, a part in it for sure. I mean, there's, there's an element of truth to what you're saying, but also the fact that no information, images, video gets out makes it a little more difficult for it to um, uh, you know snowball into something big like that. I think that's a fair point. Point, but I think that uh, similar to um, one of the quotes that we read last week after uh, the Dallas shootings is uh, I believe it was somebody from the Dallas Business Journal that said, uh, you know, you actually care when it happens in your city. Uh, and I, I think that's a similar mindset that a lot of Americans have is that they look at the first world countries, our Western European allies, as similar to us. Um, they look at it as these are my brothers and sisters in France. Uh, whereas I think when they see something happen in, in Turkey or Iraq or Afghanistan, they look at them as a third world country and not part of us. So I think it's just that mindset of essentially your haves and have nots and the American, I don't know, inherent biases that we have in terms of caring about some and not others. And it's interesting you bring up uh, Islam because I don't think that from anything I've read, this guy had anything to do. Anybody know how to say his name? Is it Bulel? I, I'm not even going to try it's to pronounce it. It's embarrassing. I'm going to say I'm going to say Bulel for sure. It's not how you say it. I'm almost positive, but that's how I say it. Um, but a neighbor, Walid Hamu, these names, God, these names. Um, he was a, he was a friend of the ex-wife. He says this guy was not Muslim. He ate pork. He drank alcohol. He hit his wife. That is not Muslim. He was not Islamic. Was not Muslim. The guy went crazy. That's all. So I mean, when you talk about the fact that there are uh, high concentrations of Islamic citizens there, I don't think that that has anything to do with the price of tea in China, so to speak. This guy didn't have any connections realistically to any sort of uh, radical cells. This guy was just a nutcase. That's not quite true. Uh, it, it, it's been reported widely that one ISIS has claim responsibility for the attack and two that this guy had actually radicalized very recently so it wasn't something that he had been taking on you know for the past like 5 10 15 years something that kind of came very quickly and i believe he actually immigrated to france from tunisia in 2005 um, so that's something that we're also seeing is i think why we're having a lot more uh, terrorist attacks um, in europe right now is because we see a lot of the, the, the immigration coming in and i think that it's actually a valid point that you know isis is sending in people from syria uh, to try to infiltrate because you know it's a lot easier with the european countries just opening up their doors no checks no balances nothing uh, so it's it's kind of a, a scary situation this guy wasn't uh, trained by isis though no, uh, but he watched some ISIS time, videos, and that you know well, well, stoked his hatred. In, in 2010, I believe it was uh, there was an, there was I don't know if it was a a movie or it, no, it it was actually in an ISIS publication or an Al Qaeda publication, but it was encouraging people uh, to use trucks as weapons and use semi trucks drive through large crowds, concentrations of people, and essentially to quote use them as a lawnmower, and that's exactly what we saw happen in Nice, and I I, th I thought it was kind of uh, interesting. Uh, that you know, you had a lot of right wing people here in the United States putting out that the meme: Are you going to? Is President Obama going to ask to ban assault semi trucks now? And I thought that was kind of funny yet ridiculous at the same time. But the fact of the matter is, terrorism is a problem. It's not going away in the Western world, and I wouldn't be shocked to see this happen at some point here in the United States. Uh, you know, coming up soon, and I, I wonder how that's going to impact the presidential race because. 
when you look at Donald Trump, for example, he was falling in the polls, on the Republican polls, prior to San Bernardino. And then when San Bernardino happened, he started to increase his anti-Muslim rhetoric, and his poll numbers went up and up and up and up. And if you look at uh, Nate Silver in 538, uh, he does a great job with the projections. I believe it was probably about two or three weeks ago, he actually showed that, uh, uh, that Donald Trump had a 20% chance of winning the general election. Now that number is over 35%. And so I think, and that was before the Nice attacks. And so I, I, I'm really curious to see if we have more and more attacks, is that going to help Trump? I think it does. Um, and, and let's not forget when we're having this discussion that even the um, socialist president of France, Francois Hollande, acknowledged very bluntly that France is at war with Islamic extremism and acknowledged that this attack uh, was by a, a guy who was in contact with ISIS. So um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just taking everything at face value. Um, and, you know, from what I'm, I'm hearing, I don't, yeah, like Austin said, I don't think this is going to stop anytime soon. I could contact ISIS. I could tweet at them. You know, I could get on some sort of social media platform and engage with them. It doesn't make me a terrorist. It doesn't make me radical. At the same time, that's what's fascinating about terrorism in the 21st century is social media. They're able to mobilize. They're able to reach people from all over the world, whereas in the 1980s, they couldn't. Like, you know, they were just isolated into the groups and, you know, the Afghanistan, the mountains, that that area. And now they have, I guess, fighters, you know, even Americans, uh, you know, buying into the uh, the extremism, wanting to go over there and, and fight, you know, what they consider the infidel. So social media is phenomenal in, in, in the sense that it, it truly makes us connect in a globalized society. And they've done a phenomenal job of striking fear in people through social media recruiting through social media and that's why we've seen companies like facebook and twitter uh, try to take down and uh, eliminate those social media accounts we've seen organizations like anonymous that have essentially declared war on you know the islamic state so uh, it, it's really interesting to see that the role of technology and how that plays and uh, you know fighting terrorism the french interior minister and uh, you'll have to probably it's bernard gazelneuf I think it's the, how the French would pronounce it. But, I think you uh, said that correctly. I think I did too. It says, this is a new type of attack. We are now confronted with individuals that are sensitive to the message of ISIS and are committed to extremely violent actions without necessarily being trained by them. And I think that it's a, it's a few years too late to say that this is new, but you're exactly right. That's what's happening, is that people that aren't in any way affiliated with that, if you want to call it a movement, an organization, whatever, you know, cells that aren't actually embedded with them, don't train with them, don't communicate with them beyond superficial, maybe back and forth on social media, but who are uh, who respond to that message and act in accordance? So it's it's hard to say that this guy. I mean, this guy's not with ISIS in any sense, and, except that he was maybe inspired by that message. And speaking of social media, uh, I see how that has almost played a, a significant role in the Donald Trump campaign. I mean, uh, when we post something on Facebook about Donald Trump, and again, you'll recall last week we asked, idiots just come out. Yeah, we we asked several people in Europe uh, what they thought about Donald Trump and. Uh, his trolls, his supporters just come out just bashing us without even like clicking on the audio to hear what we have to say. Uh, they just automatically, you know, unequivocally support Donald Trump. And I think that that's the thing with social media is guys like Trump are able to become their Republican nomination without spending hardly any money because of a strong social media presence. And that's I'm, I'm not comparing Trump to ISIS, but that's what ISIS. Let's go ahead and do that. Let's compare Trump no, to ISIS. I'm not. That's that's yeah, that's, an that. that's an asinine comment. That's an asinine comment. But uh, <laughs> they're both both organizations, both the Trump campaign and ISIS, um, are leveraging social media to uh, meet their you know in desires. And uh, to me, that's just fascinating how powerful social media is. And in in, in terms of 
power. Uh, one of the other things that has kind of taken over the global society this week is Pokemon Go. And I just see it everywhere on social media. I see people playing Pokemon Go. I was out at the museum the other night on Friday night. Oh my gosh, people it was were amazing. playing Pokemon Go. And Kevin, I know you're a huge fan of Pokemon Go. I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan at all, actually. I was uh, in a park last night at uh, 1030, which if you're in a park that late at night, you're usually not up to anything good. But I was uh, I was trying to take over a gym, uh, and I ran into some other people. I had some headphones on. I was listening to another podcast. I was listening to Comedy Bang Bang, actually one of my favorites. But I ran into some people, and they were like, oh, are you playing Pokemon Go? And I was like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. That's what are you even – and I hid my phone from them because I was ashamed of it. So it's not – I'm not like a proud – I'm sort of a closeted Pokemon Go player. Uh, I read about it. There's been a lot of stuff. This is actually, I'm a little distressed. I don't know if you guys saw my Facebook, my Twitter posts, at KMichaelCook, so you can follow me on Twitter, and you certainly should, because I post awesome stuff like this. This is from The Mirror uh, in the UK, and uh, Saddam Hussein banned Pokemon in Iraq uh, some time ago. I think this is 2004. They found these documents, but apparently, and I did not know this, uh, there are some hidden meanings behind the words here. So the quote is, Our sons have become attached to this phenomenon. The names in this phenomenon have many meanings, such as Pokemon means, and I did not know this, I am a Jew. Uh, Charmander means God is weak. Pikachu means be a Jew, which is why uh, for all of my Jewish friends during the high holidays, I say Shalom and Pikachu to them when I see, see them around. Growlithe means God is stingy and Magma means God is stupid. <laughs> So that is new information for me, and I'm not sure I should even be playing Pokemon as much as I am with those sort of horrible underlying messages. Well, let's talk about um, some of the accidents that have occurred uh, since. I mean, what Pokemon Go came out what July 6th, yeah, and but like less than you know two weeks ago, right? Less than two weeks ago, and so much has happened. I mean, we have guys falling off cliffs in California trying to find Pokemon. We had a couple people walking out into traffic, getting hit by trucks and motorcycles. Pokemon Go has become a catalyst for natural selection. It seems it's just helping nature <laughs> along, um, get, getting rid of people in the gene pool that obviously uh, were not fed by the virtue of the fact that they're playing Pokemon Go in the street. So, um, yeah, there was a guy, I, I mean, we were just at the museum the other day, and there were throngs of kids, like, walking, not into the street, but close to it, sort of, you know, and it was just huge mobs of them. And so it was just a... It just, completely insane i just i can't i don't think i've ever seen something like this before yeah on july 11th actually the uh, texas a&m police department tweeted out uh traffic accident illegally parked car struck from behind airbags deployed in second car first driver had exited to catch a pokemon so one i think the aggie jokes absolutely write themselves but uh two it is just absolutely crazy to see what the phenomenon is doing and as jeremy mentioned we were at the museum on friday night mixers and elixirs and i was telling uh, a friend that i was with that uh you know all these people are here playing pokemon i mean you could tell who was playing pokemon and who was at the museum i mean if you were dressed nice like you know wearing a, a sport coat or a cocktail dress you were going to the museum if not you're playing pokemon and when we left the event around 10 10 15 there were hundreds of people outside of the museum catching Pokemon. And uh, actually, funny story, the, the girl that I was with, she uh, ran up to a group and she put like, you know, her arms around the group. She was like, oh my gosh, are you guys playing Pokemon? They were like, oh my gosh, like an attractive girl wants to talk to us because we're playing Pokemon. And then she kind of just like trolled them and just said, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, I don't care. But it's just... I don't know. The kid after was kind of, I think, a little hurt. You're delighted by that. I think it was hilarious. It's not. It is anything but hilarious. No, it was. It was. Maybe I don't tell the story. Maybe I don't give it justice. Maybe you had imbibed some substances and your determination of what is hilarious was altered. Is that fair to say? You mean St. Arnold's? I, I yeah. do. I mean, Saint, Saint Arnold's. Saint Arnold's. I don't know what you. Saint mean. Arnold's and a Moscow. Mirror. I was there, and it was hilarious. Um, 
he should have been shamed publicly as he was but um and as i will probably be shamed for playing pokemon at some point the reason that everyone was at that particular spot was that there were pikachus there and uh, everyone was trying to grab a pikachu so um word to the wise looking for pikachu he's at the houston museum of natural science okay so i, I i'm never gonna play pokemon I, I i never played it when i was a young kid um i collected baseball cards i'm not sure that that's much better um but uh i, I would actually argue it's much worse but go ahead <laughs> no i mean uh you know there was a, there was a lot of money in uh baseball cards and it's been that way since the early 1900s um but one of the things i do find fascinating about pokemon go is the impact that it's had on Nintendo's stock. Monday, when trading opened, their share price went up 25%. Their market capital increased by $9 billion. And that's just a game after it you know, being launched like four or five days prior. So it's really going to be interesting to see uh, kind of how Nintendo capitalizes on this augmented reality and also to see uh, if they do kind of pivot from you know their gaming systems their handheld gaming systems and actually do uh, realize that there is money in mobile devices and apps uh, such as the iphone such as the android and i i think that it could be a game changer in terms of uh mobile gaming and uh it, to me it's just fascinating i'm not interested in pokemon but i'm interested in the technology behind it and the financial implications you should just play it dude you're so defensive i can hear it in your voice just download it and play it man and enjoy it i'm not going to don't be like that it does it, it does it does make you exercise unless you cheat and drive, drive the car around. I do. I drive at under 20 miles an hour on back roads all the time now. I am constantly. And I don't give it to a passenger. I don't have passengers in my car. I just play it on my. So if you see me, I have a red Toyota Matrix. Sorry, a little bit of a brag there. But if you see me, <laughs> if you see me, you should probably pull around me because I'll be driving very slowly catching Pokemon. All right, so uh, stay away from Kevin when he's on the roads because he's probably uh, capturing Pokemon. But uh, uh, very fascinating week uh, with just all the events that are going on in our world today. But, uh, you know, we also, you know, want you to go to a, a worldly bakery, if you will. Yes. You know, to, to kind of... World-class bakery. World-class bakery. If, if you are trying to, I don't know, you know, if, if you're in a somber mood and, and you want to you know, kind of eat away your pain, I would suggest we desserts. If you are looking for fuel to help you chase Pokemon, mm -hmm. I would recommend we desserts. And I'll be honest with you, this we desserts at 3411 Kirby is within uh, a very brief walking distance of three Poke stops. So if that motivates you, you should certainly get out there. They're very open to talking. The two owners actually play Pokemon Go as well. Jenny and Pim would love to talk to you about Pokemon. But uh, but yeah, certainly you can eat away your, your troubles. There's a New Orleans style of flavor to their beignets that they do. There's kind of a French artistry if you're supporting France after the attack. There's really a million reasons to go to Wee Desserts. It's OUI Desserts. But one in particular is, uh, and this offends me a little bit to talk about because I'm lactose intolerant, but they have homemade ice cream. Um, vanilla bean, banana cinnamon, chocolate fudge brownie. Uh, by the scoop, the ice cream is $2. Uh, very reasonable, very delicious, and uh, I can't have any of it. So what you should do is you should go and have some yourself and then uh, contact the show. You can reach out to us on Facebook. We're very responsive to messages or our email, theweeklybrewpodcast at gmail.com, and let us know how good that ice cream was because I can't enjoy it myself, and the only way I'll get it is through uh, through vicarious pleasure. Yeah, make sure to stop by We Desserts. Tell them that the, uh, the guys of the Weekly Brew sent you by, and you'll get 10% off of your order. Also, as Kevin mentioned, you can follow us and give us feedback on social media. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and uh, we will definitely uh, respond to any feedback, and uh, we will, uh, you know, if it's good, we'll read it on the show. But, the uh, best way to get in touch with us is to, is to follow me on Twitter, at KMichaelCook, and I'll direct you to all of our other social media channels. So, uh, yeah, go ahead and give 
Kevin a follow on K Michael Cook. Uh, you know that's that's really important to him. It actually makes his day. But uh, without further ado, we actually have a, a, a pack show on deck. We have uh, who do we have? We have Ali Khan Bajani, who is on Twitter at Rockets underscore Insider, uh, a great writer for Hardwood Paroxysm for ClutchFans.net, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, he does a lot of writing for a lot of people, but he is the guy to go to for Rockets information. We talk about some of the offseason moves that were made, and then we have Aaron Bruski, yes. who, if you'll recall, uh, when we talked about the NBA free agency in episode 50, there was a hilarious tweet that we read, and we actually contacted him, and we had a great, I don't know, 20-25 minute conversation oh, yeah. with him, just talking about the NBA in general. I think we touched a little bit on the Rockets, but it's a great conversation. And then lastly, we're going to talk with uh, Jason Lawrence, who uh, was actually, who is currently in Nice, mm. and uh, experienced the uh, the terrorist attacks firsthand. He was one of several Baylor alum that were actually there celebrating a wedding, so uh, we'll get into that shortly. But as always, we've got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. For the second time in less than a year, a major terror attack has struck the country of France. And this past Thursday, as a country was celebrating Bastille Day, a 19-ton semi-truck bulldozed through a large crowd of individuals celebrating the holiday in the city of Nice and the French Riviera. In the aftermath, more than 84 were killed with hundreds injured. And it's worth noting that ISIS has since claimed responsibility for the attack. And now joining us on the Weekly Brew podcast is a Baylor alum and a defense lawyer at Lawrence Law Firm here in Houston, Jason Lawrence, who went the attacks firsthand in Nice. And Jason, as I understand, you were in Nice celebrating with friends' wedding, and several Baylor alums were in attendance. What was going through your mind as these attacks began? Well, we were actually at a party about um, maybe half a mile up the road, uh, up the uh, promenade, and uh, the party was kind of just ending because the fireworks had finished at about 10.30. And uh, all of a sudden, when people left, uh, we were on the fourth floor of an apartment, kind of just started seeing people, like massive crowds running, tons of, uh, you know, emergency lights. So we didn't really know what was going on. And then um, basically as soon as everyone who left the party came back, you know, they were like, okay, something happened. Because it's, <laughs> it's funny because the French people over here, they don't really have a sense of urgency. And, uh, you know, when they're running that something is going wrong. So uh, it was weird. It just, it was seen as massive panic. So we, uh, we stayed at the apartment for a little bit longer, and then we uh, headed down to the street. And basically, no one had any idea what had happened because, like, we don't speak French, so we didn't didn't really figure out what was going on. But as we made our way back, uh, kind of got a semblance that something was definitely had happened. And I actually had to text my dad, who was in America, and ask him what happened because I mean I couldn't get any cell service. And uh, he was like, "Yeah, evidently a truck ran through a bunch of people." So that's kind of all we knew when it first happened. What was kind of like the uh, reaction when you when you and the rest of the group had figured out what had just happened? I mean, what was the mindset? Was there was there fear or concern that a potential second attack had happened, or did you feel that I guess the French authorities were going to take care of the situation? Yeah, I mean, we uh, we didn't even think we we weren't actually we didn't understand the gravity of what had happened because other than just seeing people running uh, and the cops were freaking out and they had their guns out and they're waving them around and. Uh, kind of weird because I was like, I've never seen that. That would never happen in America. But uh, we actually went to a bar and they closed the entire street. There's a, there's a street adjacent to the promenade called Market Street. It's usually open. It has a lot of bars and a lot of people. And it literally became a ghost town. I mean, there was no one out on the streets, no one in the city. We, we found like an Irish pub that kind of, we, we sat there, had a beer, and then uh, we're, we're just trying to figure out what was going on. And they finally were like, no, we got to close. It's where the only place open. So the craziest part of the night is as we were heading back to the hotel, 
um, we walked through the basically what would be the uh, town square, and there was military everywhere. It was like uh, as we walked kind of into the square, I, I looked down on my chest and I had like ten red beads on me, and so I basically they they were freaking out and they're like, "Put your hands up! Put your hands up!" So me and my wife and my friend Benton, uh, who's also a Baylor alum. We were all just kind of like freaked out, put our hands up. They came and frisked us. You know, like, okay. So we told them what hotel we were at, which was about 200 yards away. And they were like, okay, well, you need to go this way. Just hurry up. And uh, so that was – never really had uh, automatic weapons drawn on me before. So it was definitely a little little, uh, little scary there for a while. But we had no idea. Initially, the reports had come out that there was like a hostage situation at our hotel. So – we found that out after we got back to the hotel, or else we wouldn't have gone back. But uh, that ended up not being true. And they just really had no idea what was going on. But I mean, you could see from our hotel just bodies, you know, spread around the promenade, and uh, you knew obviously that at that point it was just it was terrible. After the last attack, which we uh, covered on this show, it was kind of it was notable how quickly France returned to business as usual, and uh, and the French sort of took pride in, in being able to return to their way of life quickly after an attack. And I'm just wondering, still being there now, uh, is did they have that same sort of resilience? Is it the same sort of mood, or is it more somber having these attacks occur in quick succession like this? Yeah, um, I actually I got up early the next morning um, and kind of walked around our hotel, and they basically had blocked off the section of the promenade where the truck had run through and there were only about four news vans out there. And, uh, so it was basically all the reporters that were on what they call it holiday. They're on vacation in France and they were here in Nice. And when it happened, they basically just had to like start reporting it. But as, as over the last few days, it's been, it's a madhouse. Um, just tons and tons of reporters are here. And, uh, but you can tell they basically set up a, bunch of memorial areas for the uh, you know to pay tribute to the victims and uh, a lot of people have come and, and laid flowers and teddy bears and candles and things and I think they declared like three days of mourning but the uh, the beach is open again and people are walking around you know there's definitely a somber mood but I mean it's uh, it certainly seems like they're going to make it back you know it's just it's it's uh you know, once they figure out what exactly happened, and I think they arrested two more people today. So it's still kind of an ongoing process, but you can tell like the, the French people definitely are resilient. I talked to a few people from here and they said, you know, we would have never expected this to happen in our entire lives. It's a small beach town, kind of like the, the smaller San Diego, if we had to compare it to somewhere in America. But yeah, they're, they're, they're making it back. Um, and people are just kind of coming to pay tribute to all the victims. And one of my questions for you is, uh, in terms of social media, I mean, I knew that several of you guys were in Nice for Stewart's wedding. And, uh, you know, immediately once I found out about the attacks on Twitter, I went to Facebook and, like, looked at y'all's Facebook profiles to see if you, you had posted any information. And the first person that I actually found out information from was uh, Sarah Summers. But one of the things that kind of struck me is Facebook had these notification systems where you can mark yourself as safe and it sent out a push notification to all of your Facebook friends. How do you think that, you know, a technology like that helps, I don't know, friends and family that might be concerned back at home? Oh, I, I think it's tremendous. Uh, the first thing I did once actually, I mean, I figured out something was going wrong. I texted my, my mom and dad and I texted my wife's mom and, uh, made sure that they knew that we were fine. And then I figured everyone at home would probably, once the news kind of came out, because at the time, I think it was at like 2 o'clock Central, 
and it was about two or three. So it was in the middle of the afternoon in America, and uh, I immediately just I posted something on Facebook because I knew a lot of people were going to be concerned. Uh, I started getting text messages, probably from like 30, 40 people that were just like, "Hey, are you okay?" And uh, the, the the marking safe things was definitely a uh, I think it's a great feature because immediately everyone kind of knew that there was like 25 Baylor alums here for the wedding. So, I, you know, I knew that there was going to be a pretty large concern. And, uh, you know, I made sure that uh, they all knew back home that we were okay. And luckily we were all in one place for that party. Otherwise, they probably would have been down on the promenade where it actually happened. So it was actually kind of fortunate that we were at a party to celebrate the couple pre marriage. That's a crazy story. But uh, I guess one of my last questions for you is that you, you travel frequently. Uh, is Does something like this kind of change your mindset in terms of places where you might travel? Or does it change, you know, the way that you, I don't know, that you're more cautious when you go into those situations? Are you more aware of your surroundings now? Or what is kind of your takeaway after being in a town that has experienced terrorism while you've been there? Yeah, I actually talked to my wife about that, and because uh, we love to travel, we were actually in Anchorage, Alaska, like two weeks ago. So we've been kind of everywhere. Um, we definitely love traveling, um, and this, yeah, being being somewhere where you know you wake up and potentially die because you're you know visiting another city in a foreign country, another France. Um, you know, I, I don't think it should detract people from traveling. I think you can be in Dallas and get shot. You know, or you could be in. Minnesota and get shot by some terrorist attack. You know, I think it's people are kind of getting sick of it. Um, you kind of see that through the election cycle going on too. It's definitely a hot topic, but I don't think it's going to detract us from traveling. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit at home with an isolationist mindset. I'm scared about it. You know, uh, people got to see the world, and you know, even if it's a little more dangerous, we're definitely got to have your wits about you. But for the most part, I think. Uh, people are still going to keep traveling in Europe and seeing places they want to see. I kind of echoed your sentiment. I'm actually going to Paris and Nice and Monaco in October, so I'll I'll be in those uh, same areas. But uh, Jason, again, we've got Jason Lawrence on joining us from Nice in France, who experienced a terrorist attack uh, this past week. And uh, Jason, we appreciate you for taking the time out of uh, your day and uh, joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And I guess from us, safe travels back to the United States. Of course. Thanks, man. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. On episode 50 of The Weekly Brew podcast, we covered NBA free agency. And if you'll recall, there was one tweet in particular that kind of stood out to us. I'm going to go ahead and read it right now. It said, uh, Clippers meeting with Durant was intense. And at one point, Steve Ballmer was crying. But everyone grew closer and a big lesson was learned in the end. Uh, That hilarious tweet comes to us from Aaron Bruski, who is the founder of HoopBall.com and the co-host of The Cause of Brew Show, which we highly recommend that you listen to. Uh, Aaron, thanks for joining us this week on the podcast. Podcasts. And now that we've had a few weeks to digest the NBA free agency, can you recall seeing this many impactful free agent signings in one offseason? You know, I'm sure there have been. This one was, I think it snuck up on us because I don't think anybody thought Kevin Durant was going to be leaving. I mean, there were reports from reliable reporters that it was a 90% chance that he would stay. But you started to see a little bit of the the foundation of the Thunder's approach starting to crack when he started to say that it would be a basketball decision. You had to start thinking, well, if it's a basketball decision, then there's a lot that goes into that. And now all of a sudden the Thunder lose some of their built-in advantages of the extra money, as well as all of the personal approach of, of just being with one team and what that means to him on a personal level and as well as for his brand. 
So you start to see that stuff start to crack. And I think the condensed nature of this timeline, because the season got elongated to accommodate for injuries, you had the finals, which was just riveting. And in particular with Kevin Durant involved and being so close to advancing. And then you get right into the draft and then, man, you're right there in a free agency. So we're just sitting there getting hit with one big thing after another. And then all of a sudden Kevin Durant leaves and the entire dynamic of the NBA changes. It just turns on its head. So I think that period was wild. Um, and, and for me to, to see my, the best, I think, tweet of my career be some joke about Steve Ballmer, that was pretty wild <laughs> My Twitter didn't stop for at least five days. <laughs> I thought I was, came up with something ridiculous enough to where people would be like, yeah, that's a joke, but apparently ridiculous knows no bounds with Steve Ballmer. So <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah, well, we, we definitely appreciate it here on the podcast. And, uh, you know, speaking of the Oklahoma City move, I mean, a lot of people, like you had mentioned, thought that Kevin Durant was going to stay in Oklahoma City. You know, they were just a game away from going to the NBA Finals this year. I think that they were probably arguably the best team. I think they could have taken out Cleveland. But uh, right now, uh, the city is almost reeling right now. And, uh, you know, Russell Westbrook is going to be a free agent at the end of uh, next year. Where do you see Oklahoma City going? I mean, is it tough to recruit players there and such a small market or do you think they can reload around Westbrook I think they can reload around Westbrook the question is going to be does Russell Westbrook want to do that because if he goes to Sam Presti and he says listen I'm going to stay I'll give you my blood oath then they start recruiting as if they've got Russell Westbrook in tow and they've got a good core when you look at a Russell Westbrook Victor Oladipo backcourt if you're trying to defend Stephen Clay those are two guys that are real high on the list as far as the two guys you want to try to do that with Steven Adams is a good neutralizer for uh, Draymond Green. Um, Andre Roberson is actually the perfect fit to cover a Kevin Durant. So you have the makings of a team that can compete with Golden State if he stays. Now the question is, does Russell Westbrook want to stay? He can arguably earn as much money away from Oklahoma City as he can there once you take the difference in contracts for endorsements and move them to a place like L.A., I don't think that there's a whole lot of difference between the the cash that he's going to make. This is really about how he feels about the organization, how he feels about his personal legacy, the teammates he can have. You know, if he goes to a place like L.A. or New York, you know, what's his team going to look like? And I don't think he's going to like what he sees in New York. And in L.A., I think there's some merit to an L.A. uh, trade. And that's really where, where this is all heading. And you've seen two opposing reports, one from Adrian Wojnarowski, which never dealt with the elephant in the room. And I think if I had to guess, this was Sam Presti and the Thunder really pushing the info out there that, hey, they, they're going to make a go at keeping Russell Westbrook. Because the, the consensus or the, well, I guess the conventional wisdom has been, if you don't get that blood oath from him, you have to trade him. And that's what David Aldridge was getting at when he said that Russell Westbrook's not going to extend his contract. I firmly believe that report, and now the game of chicken begins. Um, but if you're not getting that blood oath, you have to make the trade because it's understandable to, go- to gamble with Kevin Durant. I mean, that's a championship-quality team that you're going to have there. But once Durant is gone, to gamble with both of your superstars with the potential to come back with nothing, I don't think that that's tenable. I don't even think you could even begin to think in that direction, no matter who you are as a GM. And Sam Presti's had some mistakes, but he's had a lot of hits. He's got a lot of goodwill with that organization. So I just think it all comes down to Russell Westbrook, where he decides he wants to play. And I personally would like to see him stay with the Thunder because, again, 
they can compete with Golden State, but I also like the drama of it all. I would love to see him play Kevin Durant in the Western Conference Finals with Oakland, you know, pretty much kind of losing that team and that team heading over to, to San Francisco. They're turning into bad guys real quick. And I think the good versus evil theme would be a lot of a lot of fun. And imagining Kevin Durant trying to keep it together playing in Oklahoma City, I, you know, that just sounds awesome to me. So the superstar guy here in Houston where we are, James Harden, went on record saying, uh, I guess his commentary was, there's only one basketball. And Chris Bosh was on Bill Simmons' HBO show saying that, that adjustment can be difficult sometimes, taking your style and fitting it to a team that's already in existence, already uh, competing for it, in some cases winning championships. Uh, just kind of forecasting on paper, I mean, how do you think this is going to work out? Is there going to be that Miami Heat-like first year of adjustment, or do you think they're going to hit the ground running and be everything that people are afraid they're going to be? There are more passers in Golden State than there were in Miami. And Miami's probably the most recent example of this trying to work. And you had Dwayne Wade, who plays a lot like Kevin Durant in an isolation game. You had Le- LeBron James as a passer. You had, you could argue that Chris Bosh was a passer. And in fact, he did morph into that role. But the Warriors have multiple passers on that team. Steph passes freely. Clay passes freely. Draymond Green passes freely. Andre Iguodala passes more than he should I think that's the key difference this is why you know people try not to get too high on this team too quick and I still can't not do that I think that we're talking about a 73 win team here that just replaced Harrison Barnes with Kevin Durant I don't think they're gonna have the problem uh that the that the Heat had which was how do you make LeBron James the guy when really Dwayne Wade's still the guy um, I think we're going to see a new style offense where it's a lot of motion and a lot of stuff on the perimeter flinging the ball from side to side. You're going to have to pick your poison with these guys. And it, on these pin down screens where you've got to either switch it or face a wide open three pointer, you're just going to see guys scrambling on defense and not having any idea how to cover this. And I don't know. I, it's going to be unprecedented. I, I you know, I cannot predict doomsday for these guys. They're simply too good. It's kind of when you see Team USA go out there and play Angola-type stuff. And, yeah, that's probably not a great comparison because that was, <laughs> I think, a blowout from the 1992 Dream Team series. But the uh, the the type of free-flowing game, you're going to see that on many nights. And I think that they're going to do just fine. So uh, one particularly interesting uh, piece of fallout from this, I think, was Adam Silver made some comments uh, talking to ESPN. He said, just to be absolutely clear, I do not think that this Kevin Durant going to the Golden State Warriors is ideal from a league standpoint. And he talked a little about the collective bargaining agreement, which uh, I gather they had the ability to opt out of before uh, December of this year. So do you think that there's any teeth to those comments that Silver made? Is this the sort of thing that's uh, going to spark an opt out and a renegotiation of the CBA? This is why I love Adam Silver and I love David Stern for their many gifts in negotiation. They have nothing to hang their hat on prior to this move as going into the new CBA negotiations. It's widely known that they rolled the players over, um, that the players got one of the worst deals they could have possibly gotten under Billy Hunter. It, it was just a, a bloodshed in terms of negotiations. And then the TV deal comes in and the cap explodes. There's nothing that they can sell to the public that the owners are hurting and, you know, we've got to make sure that all these franchises are making money. Now comes along this, and Adam Silver now has, by acting first, you know, before Michelle Roberts and the NBPA, 
he's been able to own this issue and, and say, we need a hard cap to make sure that all of these teams can compete on an equal playing field and look at the, the Golden State Warriors and look at how unfair that is. And, and they're going to, it won't make sense completely. And you'll be able to unravel the arguments, but they'll push hard for this hard cap. And then it'll be a concession and it'll keep them from getting obliterated in the other direction because right now the players could probably strike. And there's always going to be a problem with player striking, particularly in the NBA, with the public perception of people thinking they're overpaid and that they should just get to work and not really truly understanding the issues involved. They could have come back because of such a lot because of the lopsided victory this last round. They could have come back and probably uh, striked and really done well at the negotiating table. Now they've got this one issue that they can hang their hats on, so it'll be a concession. So I think Adam Silver just does a real good job getting out there and taking that and hanging on to it. You mentioned just a second ago that you know some people feel that players are overpaid. I, I'd argue that guys like LeBron James are, and, and you know Steph Curry and uh, perhaps Westbrook are underpaid, and that's because the NBA has you know the max contracts that they can sign. Uh, do you think this is helpful for the game? Is it hurtful for the game? Or I, I guess what do you see? I guess LeBron's value if if it were truly a free market system. Well, his value would be something that I think it's uh, been reported or documented. Um, 75 million was Kobe about four years ago. And I'd argue that LeBron James, when Cleveland's franchise valued by Forbes, now keep in mind, Forbes is just throwing darts. They don't know. I've seen them completely get the franchise valuation thing wrong. But when he left Cleveland, it went from about 550, I want to say, down to about 300 flat. So in theory, you could argue him being the one main characteristic that he's worth $200 million, but I don't think those numbers pencil out. It was $75 million reported by the LA Times, I believe, three or four years ago for Kobe. I'd say he's probably worth $100 million, maybe worth $125, $150 million. But the issue is just the rank-and-file players are never going to go for that. They each get an equal vote in the NBPA their argument is, well, it's great that you're the face of the franchise, but you have to play somebody. And you don't, you can't just run around and shoot around with nobody defending you and have people watch. So I'm just as important as you are. And that's where this kind of negotiation comes in. The players, they get, you know, it's the whole divide and conquer thing. Why 30 owners with, you know, the, all the resources in the world and the best lawyers that money can buy will always have a natural built-in advantage against players who, you know, out of 400-some-odd players, a good portion of them are still kind of living paycheck to paycheck in the NBA world. Um, they'll, they'll always have that built-in advantage. The players really have to have good leadership at the top, which I do believe they have that in Michelle Roberts. They've got improving leadership in guys like LeBron James, and they will probably be able to band together and do something about maximum contracts being prohibitive because this is the issue is that you can't really pay LeBron or KD what they're worth. And now you do have a super team come out of this because so many factors aligned in the Warriors favor, including Stephen Curry's below market contract. If guys are getting paid what they're worth, this kind of thing doesn't happen. But I do think that the issue's muddied enough to where the Golden State Warriors and their super team is probably still going to be all right for the NBA. Um, there won't be as many teams that have a shot at it 
And I think that that's going to change the long-term planning of a lot of these teams, but it might not be as big of a difference as many think. I mean, we had maybe three, four or five teams that had a shot this year, probably be like three, maybe four teams top that have a shot next year. Um, but it will deter some would-bes that might have been a little bit aggressive last year. Um, I don't think those teams will be aggressive this year. I think somebody like the Clippers is a good example. We'll get a good litmus test of the Clippers here. If they trade Blake Griffin for a Rudy Gay and a Boston pick and essentially punt on the issue of Blake Griffin saying, you know what, we're not going to win it right now. Let's just stay competitive for Chris Paul. Let's get that Boston pick and let's move on. If that happens, you're going to see a team that's like a top six, seven team. They're basically punting. So, I mean, is that what you think is the most likely scenario for what happens with Blake Griffin? Because that was the guy kind of at the top of my list of where is this guy headed now? I think so. I think it makes a lot of sense because, I mean, if you're, if you're the Clippers, not only have you had this core forever and they're just now a year older, they've never won anything. They've never proven to be incredibly dangerous. As much as I've predicted them to do good things in the past, they've just never put it together. Nothing's changing in that regard you're not really well equipped to, to deal with the Warriors. Why not get rid of Blake while his value is still high? I mean, there's a lot of issues with Blake, um, knee, quad. I mean, his quad was actually keeping him off the floor after his hand got healed. And the hand issue is speaking to more of his kind of his character off the floor and a one-time incident that I believe probably isn't representative of him as a whole, but his athleticism has declined in every year. His game has moved further from the rim in every year. He doesn't have great post moves. So when that athleticism continues to decline, you know, you're really talking about now a jump shooting passing player and defensively, he could still gear up and get up above the rim. But as that declines, are we talking about a top 20 player? Are we talking about a top 30 player? And now he's perceived as kind of a face of the league top 10 guy I think you're going to get as much as you can get for him right now and the Celtics this is your window you're 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 looking right now if you're going to try to compete with this particular squad which has a lot of spare parts that really fit well together and you just brought in Al Horford this is the time you've got these excess picks that really have been burning a hole in their pocket for a while get in there bring in Blake Griffin now you've got a really interesting team with no real holes. It's got great defensive players on it, players that can score from all over the floor. I would feel pretty good about them against Cleveland and against the Warriors. I mean, at least we're talking, you know, it's not the, uh, the, 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 you have no chance syndrome for Boston. So I like it for Boston. So I, you know, I love stories. I think probably the best story uh, in a long time in the NBA was LeBron going back to Cleveland, redeeming himself, bringing home the championship he promised against all odds, against the best regular season team in NBA history and so forth and so on. So I, I from here I see kind of two divergent paths of this narrative. Either one, he, uh, you know, he's there for life. He's a Cleveland lifer. That's sort of his identity. He is Cleveland. Or two, maybe he's fulfilled the promise that he made to that city and he's free to pursue uh, that team up with the quote-unquote banana Boat crew, you know, uh, Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul, Dwayne Wade. Uh, wh- what do you think? Is he gonna is he gonna live out the rest of his career in Cleveland, or do you think that there's a team up with those guys somewhere in the future, and that he's sort of excused now having won a championship for the city of Cleveland? Oh, that's a great question because I, I think that now that he has won, that that would be leaving the door slightly ajar to leaving, but maybe we're talking percentage points as far as a chance goes: two percent, three percent, something in that ballpark. 
Um, whereas previously you would think unless they imploded this last year, that there was no chance for that to happen. Uh, LeBron's narrative has swung in such a way just in the last two, three months that I, I really could see him uh, staying in Cleveland almost through thick and thin. And it's, it's really kind of a, a testament to how things change so fast with winning being a, a key component of how things change. I mean, he goes and takes a Cleveland team that we had all written off for the most part and executes one of the greatest comebacks we've seen in the NBA. And he plays at his peak and he's been almost on the downside of his career, but in each of these finals, he has taken this sort of superhuman uh, mode, beast mode, if you will. And he's played almost perfect basketball from game four on. He almost played perfect basketball minus a few turnovers here and there. It was the, the idealized LeBron James that we'd always wanted out of him. And even when he was winning in Miami, he wasn't the idealized LeBron James. He wasn't attacking when you thought he should attack. He wasn't passing when you thought he should pass, you know, and vice versa. It is the total package. So you kind of do wonder if he's good enough to take Cleveland, you know, again and, and have that kind of an upset again because um, you just don't know where his ceiling is as a player. If he's just now scratching the surface and he can still bring it physically, you know, we're talking about a player that really is kind of head and shoulders above everybody else physically. And so all bets are off when you have the best player on the floor. Uh, so w with that in mind, I don't see him leaving, but I get that storyline, and, and I do like that storyline. Again, we've got Aaron Bruski joining us this week on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And uh, Aaron, last week, uh, you know, the big event going on in sports was the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And uh, that Wednesday following the All-Star Game, traditionally there's nothing going on in pro sports except for the ESPYs. And uh, in the opening monologue for the ESPYs, we had Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, essentially taking a stand against, you know, the violence that we've seen in America, uh, especially this past week uh, with, you know, officer shootings, uh, you know, police officers being shot, uh, innocent people being killed. And I I'm curious from your perspective, what does it mean for movements like this and having, uh, you know, players say that the system is broken and that we all have to do better? What does it take for, or what does it mean to have those star players kind of taking a stand and uh, almost a call to action to our society? Yeah, you know, I'm actually glad you brought that up because that's kind of the other half of the LeBron James thing that, um, has really been phenomenal this last couple months is not only does he win a championship, but he goes out on the SB stage and really becomes a leader of men on a national level, you know, because a lot of this, you know, whether you're black lives matter, all lives matter, or, you know, whatever side of any discussion that you're having about this, all this, you know, a lot of this boils down to, we all have to come together and agree on a certain code of conduct. And he focused on, um, just calling out any violence whatsoever and saying any violence is, is bad. And that, I think, will go a long way towards de-escalating a lot of the situation. If you're, you know, say you hate the cops and you, you, you really like LeBron James and you hear him say that, you know, maybe that turns your opinion a little bit about how you should feel in that given situation or vice versa. Um, seeing players stand up for things, I think it's it's, if you're another league, if you're the NFL, if you're a major league baseball, if you're any of these other leagues, you've got to be just really jealous that you don't have that type of leadership on display for your league. I think it's a really important thing that we've seen the greats that we all celebrate guys like Muhammad Ali. That's always been a part of their credo. Um, so 
for LeBron, who's had such a maligned career um, post-decision and, and really has never recovered from that, even though he won championships, going back to Cleveland, he started to swing some of that momentum back his way, but there was still just a little bit of, I don't know, blowback. Anytime he would do something with Twitter or social media, anything related to that. Now he's coming off a championship. He's doing everything you would ever want a superstar athlete to do and really propelling his career into the kind of the, the stratosphere it probably should have been in from the beginning. Uh, so I applaud them, them all. And I, and I think that everybody who agrees on this matter needs to do the same exact thing. Anything that's divisive with this matter just needs to go out the door. We need to just get on the same page and all agree that everybody needs to be treated fairly, deal with the issues that are there, and, and stop focusing on the differences when, when really we need to be focusing on the solutions. I agree with that. And of course, if you will indulge us, Aaron, we are a Houston-based podcast. And so obviously one of our uh, primary interests is in the Houston major sports teams, and particularly the Rockets. So we got Mike D'Antoni coming in, James Harden re-signed, Ryan Anderson, Eric Gordon, and Nays on the team as well now. But you're going up against that Golden State Warriors juggernaut. So just from your perspective and the outside looking in here, um, how do you grade out or rate the moves they made? And uh, and where do you see them falling in this really loaded Western Conference next season? Hooey. The loaded question. <laughs> so I'll try to be as nice as I can be. Um, because here's the thing. In a vacuum, each of these players have some serious flaws. Like, you know, Ryan Anderson's probably going to be on the top of the list. And out in, I, I'm out of Sacramento, and they were really hot on his tail. And I cover New Orleans pretty closely. And so... I knew why Ryan Anderson wasn't on the court when he wasn't on the court. It was because of defensive issues and frankly, not getting it done on the offensive end quite a few times and not being a force on the glass. And a lot of this might come back to injuries and he's, he's a great guy and he's been through a lot personally. And the fact that he's still, you know, playing at a high level, a lot of people would have quit. He's, he's really a great guy and somebody that you want on your team in the locker room. But that's a lot to pay for a guy that in a vacuum is going to really, I mean, I, I worry about his offensive game um, as much as his defensive game. A lot of his um, to the basket moves, which are actually quite um, clever. He's going to have a hard time to getting those off as his athleticism declines. And really, you know, we're talking about a career 36, 38% shooter. So um, that said though, that said, and you could go on down the line to talk about Eric Gordon's injury history. You could talk about how players fit with James Harden. You can talk about the lack of, um, you know, superstar power. You could talk about Mike D'Antoni's failings and various stops along the way as a coach. You could talk about the heat that Daryl Morey's under, you know, to produce a winner. Um, all of that said, if you're going to go out, I would go out the way that you guys went out because, A, you know, not a lot of teams have a chance against the Warriors. You've got James Harden. You really want to maximize what he does well. And with Mike D'Antoni coming in, he fit Daryl Morey's the way he look at, looks at the game. There weren't a lot of candidates that wanted to come to Houston. And so you go with Daryl, or probably you go with Mike D'Antoni. You go with an all offensive team. Everybody can get up and down the floor and fill it up. And you just let the pieces fall where they may. And, and I think if you're the Rockets, a good goal for this season, if you can just have a good showing, 
where you hang around in the Western Conference and maybe get a fifth or a sixth seed and just show that things are capable of working at a, at a good level with, without drama. You know, the players click with James Harden and the system starts to click under Mike D'Antoni. Then you can build off that. Free agents will want to come in the future years. And, and you can start to get guys that can fit Mike D'Antoni's system that are higher-end guys that will give you better results on the floor and compliment James Harden for who, and for all of his gifts. You know, you need guys that play well off the ball. And, and for James, we're going to have to see, can he be a guy that can distribute the ball a little bit faster because he does pound the air out of it? And um, ultimately, will he play defense? And that's the big thing with Mike D'Antoni is he's not going to really ask James to play defense. So it's, it's something – I, I, I don't like each move in a vacuum, but I do like them all in the aggregate. Well, hopefully that means Rockets championship, and I, I, I think that's what you said. So I'm going to go ahead and... Uh... We'll just go with Rockets championship, and you know, <laughs> you don't blame me when it doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. But again, we've got Aaron Bruski on uh, joining us this week on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And Aaron, of course, we mentioned your, uh, you know, your hilarious tweet at the top of the of the interview. But uh, you know, you're pretty active on social media. You've got the the Cause and Brew Show, and of course, Hoopball.com. Uh, for our listeners that want to try to connect with you and kind of learn more about what you do, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you uh twitter aaron bruski a-r-o-n-b-r-u-s-k-i is probably the easiest way uh we're at hoopball tweets hoop-ball.com um the uh cause and bruce show we don't do a lot of tweeting out of that but that's where i dump a lot of my my thoughts that are not fit for print and uh <laughs> we uh, we joke around a lot it's a lot of fun and uh yeah drop me a tweet let me know what you think well aaron we definitely appreciate it thanks for joining us this week anytime you guys have a good one you're listening to the Weekly Brew. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew podcast is Alikan Bajani, otherwise known as at Rockets underscore Insider on Twitter. Uh, he writes for ClutchFans.net, Hardwood Paroxysm. I've seen some articles for ESPN 97.5. The guy is uh, a writer about town. And uh, would it be fair to call you a basketball guru? Yeah, that's, that's a fair assessment. Well, basketball guru is our assessment here, and we are delighted to have you on with us. So a lot of big moves this offseason, the biggest being Kevin Durant to the Golden State Warriors, but a little bit more under the radar. The Rockets have been making some noise, some signings, but perhaps the biggest move of the offseason for the Rockets was James Harden, the nominal superstar, re-upping for a four-year, $118 million commitment, securing our future with this offensive megastar. And and I think, would it be fair, and would you agree with me to say that this is the biggest move for the Rockets of the offseason, and is it a good move? Um. I think this is the biggest move the offseason along with two signings of Eric Gould and Ryan Anderson. Um, but in, in terms of locking down Harden for those extra couple of years, I think it, it, it you know, put, puts forth the eyes instead of on free agency next season to more so on basketball itself. And, you know, the Rockets want to get to winning. And when when Durham Moore talked about it, the Rockets had some extra cash space left over. And they ultimately decided that, you know what, let's re-up you know, Harden to his deal and you know, I, I think it's great. You know, it, it, it loses some flexibility, but in the in the end run, you know, flexibility doesn't win you games. It's the players that you have on your roster, and, and you undoubtedly have a top five player in James Harden, who's somebody who can create, who's a playmaker, who can you know be your lead point guard, who can be the best shooting guard in the league. And you have a lockdown for the next few seasons, and now you can just you know continue to bring in guys who can you know feed off of him and his you know greatness and. Um, as a basketball player, you know, you're basically in a situation that's unlike what's going on in Oklahoma City right now where 
Kevin Durant has, you know, has left and joined the Warriors, and now you have Russell Westbrook, who is going into his last season before free agency. And, you know, there's so much, you know, going on there, and you don't know if he's going to resign or if they're going to trade him. So, you know, instead of facing those question marks, the Rockets can now just stick to basketball and, you know, just, you know, rely on Harden, who is officially the leader. You know, you give him this big contract, you know, you, you kind of lose some of that flexibility for this offseason, the next offseason. You know, you expect him to own up to that he has. Um, I, I can tell you this from the press conference and uh, just, you know, the past couple of days, you know, we've seen in summer league, this is, this is the best I've seen James Harden look as a leader. I was going to say that that's been what a lot of people have been saying that he has seems to have turned a corner in terms of character. I've read a lot of analysis of his letter to the fans, of his visibility in the press conference, even things as simple as body language, meeting people's eyes, stuff like that. But from a basketball standpoint, I agree he's a superlative talent. Um, but the question people always ask is, and it's kind of a hack question, but I'm going to ask you anyway: it, it, Can you build a championship team around James Harden? Can he be your number one guy and take you to that promised land? I, I think you can, and that comes with him playing like he did in that runner-up MVP. Uh, year, um, and you know he that that was a phenomenal year. You know, one one for the record book. So was this past season. But you know, if, if the Rockets truly want to be a championship contender, and that's within with James Harden as a the lead guy, he has to take that like that next step and to join the upper echelon of the guys like Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, LeBron James. And I and I really do think James Harden can get there. But you know, with Mike D'Antoni and. Um, with their communication back and forth on what they want to do, on some changes in James Harden game, some nuances here and there. You know, I, I think they can get there, and I think James Harden can lead a team. It's just a matter of can he take that next step. He's already taken that step before. We've seen him be an MVP player. It's now time for him to show that he can be a consistent juggernaut with the likes of LeBron and Steph Curry. Um, you know, undoubtedly those, those two and Kevin Durant are the best basketball players in, in the world right now, but can he take his game to that level. So that's obviously a huge move, uh, keeping that guy. And we've seen what happens to a team like Oklahoma City when their star flees. So it's nice to have that security blanket of knowing that Harden's going to be here at least for a while while they have the chance to build around him. And speaking of building around him, of course, we added two guys, and Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon would be, I guess, the two uh, quote-unquote big-name splash free agent signings. you got Anderson, four-year, $80 million. Gordon, four-year, $53 million, both long-term contracts. But with the crazy money that was being thrown around in NBA free agency, I mean, do you think those are reasonable contracts, and can those guys help this team win? You know, um, for the fans out there and listeners, I, I kind of want to just throw this out there. Um, when you're looking at the salary cap, not just with this offseason, but with the next offseason and after the new CBA agreement, I think you should look at the cap, uh, at salary cap and these contracts as a percentage. So Ryan Anderson got, you know, that contract, and it was about, you know, 18 to 20% of the salary. James Harden's salary from last season, right, if you look at it in terms of last season's salary cap, it was around 25%. If you take his new salary, it goes down to 20% of the new cap. And so you want to look at it, you want to look at it through that perspective of a percentage of the cap because that ultimately tells a story of how, how valued that contract is in terms of flexibility and stuff like that. So, you know, when people are looking at these numbers, oh, my God, this player got four years, $58 million, $60 million. Yeah, that's a lot of money, and that comes with players, you know, benefiting from a new TV deal from, you know, the owners and the players not, you know, doing cap smoothing during the last CBA and, you know, the players rightfully are cashing in and, you know, getting a more amount of money. But I, I think when you're looking at the Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon signing, for example, I think those are reasonable deals. Um, Ryan Anderson, you know, he is not a max player. 
But in terms of getting a guy who's a perfect fit for Mike D'Antoni's system, I think you know the Rockets did a great job of getting uh, you know somebody in who can shoot the ball. I think um, as Daryl Morey alluded to in the press conference, I think he is truly the best shooting power forward. Um, somebody who can he's a great spacer. By that I mean he can gravitate the defense towards him and open up more driving lanes for James Harden and some other ball handlers to create off the dribble and attack off screens, which D'Antoni's offense relies upon. So I, I think in terms of Anderson, that's a great fit. Um, Eric Gordon's an interesting case, and a lot has been made about his about him being injury-prone. I don't think he's been injury-prone. I think he's ha- dealt with the injuries that have been unfortunate. Um, and and the best thing about that is, is that, you know, recently they haven't been, like, foot injuries or, like, knee or back where you're like, oh, man, like, are they going to be chronic? Even the cue, like a broken finger, stuff like that, where it makes me think that, you know, this is a reasonable deal, and if you give – Ed Gordon, if, this is, if he's healthy, if you give him an opportunity to play with the second unit, be that third rotation guard with James Harden, Patrick Beverly, that you have somebody who can shoot the basketball at an elite level, who can you know spot up and be another floor spacer um, for an offense that was lacking shooting last season. And you know one underrated thing about Eric Gordon is that he's not an unbelievable passer, but he's a good passer, in which the Rockets and this system need some good passers on this team. And a guy like him who can attack a closeout, who can, you know, create off of some pick and rolls and create some other three-point opportunities or, or some dumb downs for his teammates. I think this is a good deal. I think Eric Gordon, you know, should be successful here in Houston, if healthy. One thing that's interesting to me is obviously Nene is going to be on this team as well, maybe several years too late uh, in terms of, you know, reaching his peak performance or whatever. But he's a guy that we know uh, Daryl Morey's coveted. He was almost here before. Uh, Ryan Anderson, a guy that Morey has coveted, now he finally has his hands on. It kind of makes me think, looking at it, that maybe there is a plan, that it is all coming to fruition. And what do you see as Daryl Morey's plan? Like, what is this team going to look like next season? What's going to be the character identity? Because, you know, Dan Tony has said he wants to see Harden getting 12 or 13 assists a game, which I think the guy's capable of. What's this offense? It's going to look like next year you know that's that's the thing it's going to be an offensive driven system and i mean there's no sugarcoating it there defense will come the defense will improve the defense will be there uh you know coach bezdelic will do a great job he's known for his defensive skills with wake forest with denver with memphis he did a great job of adapting to that that team's personnel and i think that's something unique um i'll give you a perfect example of his defense and i'll, I'll go into the offense a little bit here but um, with Memphis, they faced all those injuries, and he did a great job of game planning and making the defense easier to understand for these players who were they, they were signing up off the streets to play, and they still played hard, and they still played well, and they still caused some you know miscommunication and mistakes by some NBA offenses, and then I think that's all you can ask for from a defense is to make it harder for these elite level offenses, these complex offenses for the basketball. And now in terms of the Rockets' offense, um, I think that. You know, it's going to be a very up-tempo system. It's not necessarily going to be in a seven seconds or less. You know what, every time down, we're going to shoot a three, come off a screen, and they're going to jack up a shot. I think it's just going to, you know, the, the biggest thing, the biggest difference from last year and from the uh, last couple of years is that, you know, the players will finally have an identity on offense. And um, I know there were times last season where players were confused with their roles. You know, they, were, they, were, they kept moving in and out of the lineup. So sometimes a player would move to the four but then he's used to the three, but then sometimes he would play the two. So, you know, the, these kinds of things, you know, they, they cause uh, mistakes with, with the team, and they, that, that's where chemistry comes in is when each player knows each other's roles and they know their own roles and they're able to adapt to that and be successful. Each player here has a certain skill set. Each player here has certain strengths. And Mike D'Antoni has always done a great job 
of looking at his team, looking at which players have certain strengths as they whether it be their passing, whether it be their shooting, whether it be ability to drive or have speed, and he's able to exploit that for his for his offense. And he's consistently had a top level offense for a reason because he's able to adapt his offense to his personnel and adapt his personnel to his offense. And it's going to be a communication thing. It's going to take the players to listen to Mike Antonio. It's going to take Mike Antonio to listen to his players. And I can tell you that you know he he, he really wants to change the way the perception has been. You know with his stint with the Lakers and the Knicks that. He's learned about communication, how important it is for him to reach out, how important for him is to make those bonds with his players on a basketball and non-basketball level so they can be successful. Um, and then to the last point to Nene, I, I think Nene is a great addition, especially for that the room exception. Um, he's good in low post. He's a superb passer at the center. He's not a great – he's not like a phenomenal passer, but he's somebody who can work from the elbow, work from the low post, make some passes here and there some cutters, stuff like that, something you kind of want in this offense. Um, he shot 40% from mid-range, which is, you know, something the Rockets don't have as a mid-range shooter from that, you know, power forward center position. And I, I, one last point I want to make about Nene is that most of assists the past couple of seasons have come to guards. And when you look at a big guy, first of all, bigs aren't supposed to be able to pass that well. When you look at the, the next, you know, this next generation of NBA centers, they're great passers. They can actually dribble. They can actually handle the basketball a little bit. They can attack a little bit. And I think with Nene, you have somebody there who you can plug in and spend 20 minutes off the bench, maybe 15, 20 minutes to help Capella get a couple of minutes of rest and allow him to, you know, help facilitate that second unit offense with a guy like Eric Gordon, be able to move the basketball. You know, this, this offense will be a lot of movement, a lot of, you know, finding the open shot, the best high percentage shot. And the Rockets have clearly found, you know, they're, they're clearly trying to get players who fit the mold of passing and scoring and just being able to be good movers of the basketball. It should be player movement and ball movement, and we'll see a lot of that this season. I think it's interesting you bring up Capella there because to me, he's kind of a wild card. I think that in the moment, a lot of us, myself included, were thrilled to see Dwight Howard take his talents elsewhere, anywhere else really, but that leaves us with the reality of Clint Capella getting the lion's share of those minutes at center. Um, you know, We've seen uh, other players in the past that you know analytics have, uh, have uh, determined as being guys that could benefit from more minutes. What do you think is going to happen to Capella as he takes that starting role, and what's he going to be able to do for this team going forward? You know, he's working with John Lucas in uh, Las Vegas right now, and they're, you know, they're working really hard on just developing an all-around game. Um, I, I think one thing you can look to from Kim Capella is that he is the mold of what you want in a center in today's NBA. He can guard the pick and roll. He can defend. He can, you know, set a solid screen. He'll set a screen to the waist um, at a 45-degree angle of the, uh, of the ball handler's defender, and then he'll run hard toward the rim and catch it and finish, you know. That's something you want in the center today, and Capella fits that. Um, defensively, he's somebody who can guard the paint, block shots, but he can also switch himself onto those smaller ball handlers and stay with them. You know, he's, his, his lateral quickness is great for somebody his size, and the Rockets really use that, um, especially towards late last season when um, Capella was coming off the bench and then he would, they would always switch every single pick and roll. So Capella has experience. Um, one thing I think you'll notice um, and this will come with more playing time, is that, you know, one thing I worry about is the stamina. Um, you know, coming, coming off the bench, playing 20, 25 minutes a night, now you're going to be expected to play 30 minutes a night, 35 minutes a night, and be the anchor defensively for a Rockets team that will have a minus defender playing power forward starting in Ryan Anderson. Um, you know, having James Harden, who hopefully 
um, takes the next step defensively and exerts more effort, you know, on that end. Um, he's going to have a lot of responsibility. And you know, the question becomes, can he handle that? I think he can. I think he will be able to handle that. Um, but, you know, it's going to be up to the Rockets to see how they can fit all these pieces together. Ryan, one thing about Ryan Anderson is that he's a very underrated rebounder. He has a good nose for the ball. He's very smart. He picks his spots. He learned that from uh, Stan Van Gundy when his time with Orlando. So, you know, when you, can, you can, you know, think about moving Capella up to block the shot. You know, all these intricacies defensively, that's in, that, I think that's where the Rockets will need to work on it. Where do we put Capella? What positions do we put on uh, put him in, depending on certain situations? And, you know, can he be successful? I think he will be successful. It's just a matter of let's put him on the floor. Let's, you know, let's let him go. Let's, you know, take off that leash and let's see what happens. Well, famously on this program, I predicted last season that the Rockets would, I can't remember if I said win the NBA title or at least be in the NBA Finals, which is obviously not correct at all. So I backed off of making predictions and I backed off of being that optimistic. I'd say I'm cautiously optimistic, particularly after this discussion. But uh, it was an absolute delight. We appreciate you coming on, Ali Khan. And uh, when you're not here on this show speaking with us, how can the listeners reach out to you and uh, find your work and the things that you put out? Yeah, um, this show is great. Uh, you know, I listen, I listen to it every week. Just wanted to let you know, y'all do a great job. But um, you. you can find me on Twitter at Rockets underscore Insider. I do write for um, three websites. I write for ESP975.com. Um, I do write for ClutchFans.net, and I do write for HB Basketball at Hardwood Rock Season. So you can find me there on those three websites, and hopefully we'll have some more content as we continue this offseason. Well, we certainly recommend that the listeners go out and find your work, and we appreciate you coming on, man. Take care. Take care. Thank you so much. Closing time. Again, you've been listening to episode 52 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. And I, th- I thought we just had three phenomenal guests. Uh, thanks to Ali Bajani, Aaron Bruski, and Jason Lawrence for joining us this week. Uh, if you like NBA, we covered it top to bottom. If you like the Rockets, we covered it top to bottom. For the world event that happened this week, uh, that was the unfortunate terrorist attack in Nice that killed uh, 84 people, left hundreds injured and severely wounded. Uh, we spoke with uh, Jason Lawrence, who is a Baylor alum and was actually in Nice just blocks away from uh, the attack when it happened. And uh, he's currently in Nice and when we dis- when we spoke with him. And so, uh, Jason, thanks for taking time out of your trip to join us. But a uh, crazy week, guys. And, and, and terrific guests. And uh, honestly, we'd love to have you follow those guests on social media. The easiest way to get uh, to them is to follow at Cook, and I will direct you to their Twitter handles. It's very simple that way. Just follow me, and I'll, I'll get you there. But, uh, but yeah, I love talking basketball. I'm always anytime, – anytime I have a chance, I want to talk some basketball. And those are two great guys to talk basketball with. So I certainly enjoyed it. Uh, how optimistic are you feeling about the Rockets season this year? I, I, I was, I'm still not optimistic. No, I'm not no. optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. I, but, I mean, I think easily uh, a home a home home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs is a possibility, I would say. Uh, it is within the realm of possibility. So a four or five seed would be something I could live with, something you could build around. And I think that after talking to Ali Khan, that's, uh, that's something that I, I think we could potentially get to, particularly with the guys we signed. Kevin, I believe that was your third shameless plug uh, for this episode of the podcast. But... I don't think Kevin has any shame. And if you have, if you want to complain about my plugging, you can just follow me at kmichaelcook <laughs> and tweet at me and let me know what an a- you think I am.
But, uh, you know, there's actually some big news on the baseball front. Uh, the Astros uh, came back from the All-Star break, and they, they picked up the first game in their series against Seattle. Uh, they were, I guess, as of Sunday, four and a half games behind the Texas Rangers for first place in the American League West. And if we recall, just about two or three weeks ago, they were 11 games back. So they're definitely making a surge. And actually, uh, on, on this past weekend, the Astros announced the signing of a Cuban free agent, Ulysses Gurriel, to a five-year, $47.5 million contract. He's going to play Enfield, uh, probably going to go to Corpus Christi and get things started before he's called up uh, to the Astros in either August or September. So Alex Bregman on the brink of joining the Astros. We've talked about him several times. And El Yuli, uh, who's one of the best Cuban baseball players, uh, in 2015, he actually hit 500. That's insane. One out of every two at-bats he got wow. a hit. Uh, that, that's, no, I know what it means. Yeah, that, that's a pretty phenomenal clip considering, uh, you know, the best player for the Astros right now is hitting like 340. So uh, definitely excited to see what he brings, where they actually place him. Are they going to put Bregman at third? Are they going to put him in the outfield? Are they going to put uh, Yuli at third? Are they going to put him at first base? So there's, I think that's a good problem to have for the Astros. So while we discussed a lot of the Rockets, I had to get some Astros talk in there uh, because Astros are the hot team right now in the American League. Absolutely. I would love for them to uh, bring a championship home to the city of Houston. But it's fun to see them making moves too we always liked uh, something to talk about at least yeah absolutely and uh speaking of championships uh we have a championship listener this, this week is that correct we have one champion listener this week my favorite listener of the week it, listen it's very easy to become my favorite and it is an honor i would like you to know that if you've ever been one of my favorite listeners it is an honor and you should feel honored this week's uh, honoree is s-g-k-e-r which if you were to pronounce it how would you pronounce that so I think that um, maybe foreign. That's fine. It could We're be initials. Could, could be, be initials. initials. Could be someone with five names. S J K E R. Sure, sure, sure. So listen now with an exclamation mark uh, is the title of it. Five stars, of course. This is a great podcast where you can get a mix of everything you need to know. Stay up to date on sports, politics, current events, and so much more. Make sure to give it a listen. And I said as I was reading that that if I had written the review for someone else, which I have never done once, ever. Have I never, I've never done that. That's dishonorable even. But if I had to write a review on behalf of someone else, that's exactly the kind of review I would write. So congratulations, SGKAR. You're a terrific human being, uh, a delight, and this week's uh, my favorite listener. Is that a Pokemon name? Is it a Pokemon? Let me know. Give us another review and let us know if that's a Pokemon name. Uh, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at KMichaelCook and let me know if that's a Pokemon name. Was that five, six? <laughs> I don't know. Don't Jeremy, know. Jeremy is I'm, just shaking his head right I'm, now. I'm, I'm, I'm counting. But speaking of social media, we want to make sure that you follow us on social media. You can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We post all of our content there. And uh, also, make sure to leave us an iTunes review. We definitely appreciate SGK. Boy, I can't even tell you. But uh, <laughs> thank you to that person for leaving us an iTunes review this week. And, uh, you know, Kevin, if you're having complications uh, doing iTunes reviews, and I know a lot of our listeners do it on a mobile device what is the best way for them to leave a, a review so i was racking my brains this week and i realized most people uh, we ran the numbers most people listen to us on a mobile device it's a little more tricky to give us a review on a mobile device than it is on the desktop basically when you go to the podcast app which is that purple one that should be in the bottom left corner of your home screen because you'd be listening to podcasts all the damn time but you go to that one and you go to the far right once you're inside of that and search you actually need to search for us so if you're already subscribed that's great you did part of your job there you can listen to us in the home screen of your podcast podcast app but in order to leave us a review you need to go to the right hit search search the weekly brew and then when you pull up our page the middle tab says reviews and that's how you leave us a five-star review and that's how you get to be our favorite listener for the week like sgker was this week 
So thanks to everyone that has left his iTunes reviews in the past. And if you haven't, we hope you get on the bandwagon and do that soon. But uh, we had a phenomenal episode this week of the Weekly Brew Podcast. And again, thanks to Ali Kambajani, Aaron Bruski, and Jason Lawrence for joining us. And uh, we look forward to uh, bringing you great content again next week as episode 53 comes. And uh, Dolores Lozano joins us again as she gets back from California. But uh, for my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember this week, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do, always, always, Always follow me at K Michael Cook on Twitter. You've been listening to the Weekly Brew. 